You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. As practitioners, we have to understand the balance between being very user-centric also remembering that you know good design is good business and you know design is commercial you know advantage and, and all of these sorts of things i think educating our team to be able to think about the balance between those two things is really critical to not only our success at designing great products but also our success at positioning design within businesses as being a very strategic layer and not a service hello i'm Marek pavlowski and that was gavin edwards Director of Product Design and Research at Skyscanner, talking there about the role of his large, like 50-person-plus in-house design team. So Gavin is my guest on the show today, and one of the things I enjoyed about this conversation was how Gavin's experience has been shaped by scale. Skyscanner is a global service. They've got something like 90 million monthly users. Gavin's team is distributed across seven countries. This is digital design where small changes can have big impacts on the way people navigate that often quite stressful task of booking their travel plans. I first met Gavin. He was at ELSE, uh, this independent design agency based in London, where he was user experience director and a partner. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, you might remember that I spoke with the founder of ELSE, Warren Hutchinson, in episode 46 of this podcast. Uh, And I'll put a link to that and all of the other things that Gavin and I get to talking about in the show notes. Um, And you can find those over at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. So Gavin is really a veteran of digital across both agency and in-house teams. And we talk a bit about how that experience of being both agency side and in-house side has informed his relationships with the agencies that he now works with on behalf of Skyscanner. He's also another Brunel alumnus, and that's something which I think seems to be becoming a bit of a thread on this show at the moment. Anyway, here's our conversation. Uh, I'm going to be back at the end when I've also got a new Mex user story for you, something we haven't done for a little while on the show. But in the meantime, hope you enjoy my chat with Gavin Edwards. What sort of a traveller are you, given your role at Skyscanner? How would you describe yourself as a traveller? That's a, that's a great question, actually. No one's ever really asked me. How would I describe myself as a traveller? Well, I think, like with all travellers, um, particularly people who travel a lot, that my travel style changes based on a variety of contexts. So the type of traveller I am when I'm travelling for work is very different to the type of traveller I am when I'm travelling with my family. Um, I tend to put focus and priorities on different things, for example. So if I'm travelling for work, I tend to optimise my timing around maximising time I have available to myself in order to, you know, capitalize on capitalize on that. Um, I try and structure my flight times or, you know, my commute times accordingly. If I'm traveling with my family, it's a whole different set of priorities. I think that's one of the fascinating things about traveling. It's one of the reasons why I ended up at, at Skyscanner, which was it's a incredibly complex domain. And travel is something that is fascinating and rewarding and if you look at how it informs and changes us individuals it's an incredibly empowering thing it's actually one of the things that defines a lot of our 
behaviours um, and you know, shapes who we are. And there's a whole body of research that, 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 that backs that up. Yeah, I bet it must be a fascinating thing to start getting into the detail of, you know, once you start looking at those user behaviours above and beyond, you know, how yourself um, would approach travel. I mean, have you been surprised by the behaviours that you've discovered as you've started to get more into researching who the kind of people are that are using Skyscanner? Because it's, I mean, it's a pretty well-known brand. Um, I guess it would be very difficult to go into a role like yours without at least some kind of preconception about who those customers might be. But have you been surprised by the reality of what you've actually discovered? Yeah, I think so. I think I always knew or perceived just from my own experiences that it's an incredibly complex world and that actually your behaviours don't necessarily fall into a typical persona because actually the context of each trip is very different. Um, it could be a very positive journey or experience that you want to go on that is based on a certain set of parameters or style. It could be that you're traveling for a funeral or a wedding and all of those different emotions drive a different set of behaviors. And I think no matter how complex I thought it was, when you add into that the fact that we are a global brand, a global business, uh, we have 90 million you know, monthly actives across you know, pretty much every country apart from North Korea. So when you add in cultural behavioral differences as well, trying to build a product that serves the needs and solves problems for all of those travelers in a coherent and consistent manner is very, very challenging. Uh, the way that people browse travel products in South America is very different to the UK, it's very different to India, it's very different to Russia. It's a, an amazingly fascinating and complex landscape to navigate when you start to try and unpick individuals' behaviours. Do you have to prioritise the degree to which you do start to try and unpick those those individual stories? Because when you're talking about 90 million users, I mean, the scale of that, and as you say, the potential differences across trip reasons, across cultural background, um, must create an almost sort of infinite matrix of possibilities. So how do you start to actually get a handle on that we come into a, a role and work out well you know we we can't make it entirely personal to every one of those users but what what can we do with anything like this it always starts with you know well what do we know what do we understand so looking at our existing product and our existing behaviors what evidence have we got or what you know facts have we got that we can kind of you know, establish some sort of foundational understanding i think beyond there the prioritization becomes about well where where is the business heading um, you know, what do we want to achieve as a business? Uh, what external market forces or you know, social factors, etc., are shaping the, the, the products that we're building and prioritizing accordingly. So, for example, if we are, if we have a certain uh, cohort or cluster of people behaving in a certain way in our product, can we uh, increase or better support their needs? Um, is that the right way to target how we grow or is it actually say to say, no, we're doing a very good job for those. How do we solve things for people who are having are not getting their problems solved, um, or are using different products or services? Um, and it's always a it's always a challenging trade off to understand, you know, whether you go all in on one of those things or spread yourself very thin across multiple things. And, and obviously, as a global product, that makes it even harder to, to to prioritize. So one of the things that I have been very fortunate to do, I guess, in my time at Skyscanner, is work very closely with the, the product team and the product leadership. Um, to try and bring design and product management closer together um, to understand you know, the problems that we are solving and how they benefit and impact uh, travelers. Uh, but remember, you know, Skyscan is a marketplace, so really we have, we have to serve the needs of two, two very different types of people. We have to serve the needs of our partners 
And equally, we have to serve the needs of our travelers. And we have to bring or build a product that brings those two people together in the right way to solve to solve their problems. And ultimately, if we do both of those things correct, then it's a win for them, but it's also a win for us because um, it helps us you know, keep the lights on, but also helps us understand that we can invest in what we think we need to do next. Yeah, that must be an interesting balance to strike, as you say, having those two different sort of customer groups, the, both the partners and the, the end users who are accessing the, the website. Is that something which ends up with a kind of conscious delineation in the teams that address those parts of it? Or, or do you take a, a sort of integrated overall approach to how you make design decisions to, to balance the needs of those two groups? There's a delicate tension between those two, but make no bones about it, we are. We, we position ourselves and talk very much, you know, culturally, it's kind of being about, about being a traveler first business. So that, that kind of forces our, our hand a little bit in terms of like how we balance our thinking. Um, if we make sure that we put travelers first, and you know, actually it's a three partner, travelers first and partner second and you know, Skyscanner um, third. And it is a delicate balance and it's not about, that's not a hierarchical thing. Imagine those three things as points in a triangle and it's about moving, you know, closer to one sometimes than it is to another. And it is about building a balance between between those three things. So it's, uh, yeah, a delicate tension. From a practitioner's point of view, at least from the conversations I've had on this podcast and some of the experiences I've had in consulting myself, it's a, it's a delicate balance. And at times it can be one of the most frustrating of things to try and strike, but also it can be one of the most rewarding when you actually get that right. And you feel like you're, you're riding that wave of managing to balance all of those different needs and everyone ends up sort of winning off the back of a, a particular initiative that that can be incredibly satisfying to navigate that complexity. I think so. And I think that's where actually as practitioners, we have to understand the balance between being very user centric, but also remembering that, you know, good design is good business and, you know, design is commercial, you know, advantage and, and all of these sorts of things. I think educating our team to be able to think about the balance between those two things is really critical to not only our success at designing great products, but also our success at positioning design within businesses as being a very strategic layer and not a service. And I think when you look at um, things like the design maturity survey that um, Envision recently published or the McKinsey report that happened, uh, came out last year, we need to be able to, as practitioners, talk the language of design and user centricity in our processes, but equally we need to talk the language of business. Um, we need to have the right vernacular to be able to go into strategic conversations with uh, product people or my exec and make sure they understand that this is the advantage that having great design thinking, great design process has uh, in moving our business forward. Was that something which was explicit in your role when you took it on? Because it's, it's what now, like a couple of years you've been at Skyscanner. You know, were you brought in into a role with that specifically in mind that you would be trying to actively make that link between design and products, get them working more harmoniously together? Or is that something which has kind of evolved in the doing of your role and become something that you've you've built for yourself? I think it's probably a combination of both. Um, I don't think necessarily it was it was clear and I, I you know I've shaped my role somewhat myself as we've gone through my time at Skyscanner. But uh, you know again going back to my previous experience, you know, either when I was at agencies or when I was client side it's always been something that I've leaned more towards doing anyway um, and helping businesses understand that design plays a strategic a strategic role. So I think I naturally fall into that camp where I, I tend to push that part of my, my, my tool set and try very much to you know, advocate that within our processes. Let's talk a bit about 
consulting because you made your, your role prior to Skyscanner, as I understand, was at else very much in the uh, agency side, as it were, as opposed to, to client side. How did that prepare you for Skyscan? You know, there are things that you draw on in a daily role at Skyscanner that um, that, that time at ELSE equipped you for? I, I was very lucky when I was at ELSE to work with some some great people, I had great partners, and we had a, a great team around us. Um, and I think the thing that you know, agency agencies give you is your you're working very fast and there is an expectation on the work that you have to deliver has to have impact. Um, you're working, well, we, we worked across pretty much every industry vertical you could, you could, you could imagine. And I think when you start to have those fast paced uh, conversations and work in that way across many different um, sectors in many different types of businesses, you learn quite quickly, I guess, how to operate quickly. Um, but also very strategically and in very differently shaped or shaped businesses, businesses that have got different levels of maturity. But equally, because they are paying you, there is an expectation that you have to deliver. And I think that's one of the things that I guess consulting has, has, has given me is that, is that ability to operate strategically at an executive level and very quickly. And I loved all of the, all of that time. It was, you know, I guess, a big part of the it was what shaped me as a, as a designer. Do you think it makes you a better client to work for, having had that level of seniority within quite a pioneering agency. It's something I always wonder about, you know, as people inevitably go through, I guess, a bit of a, a cycle in their career of getting to a pretty senior level in an agency and then going and working client side. And then it kind of makes you wonder whether you need to pity the agencies that are then <laughs> pitching in to that person because they obviously have such an intimate knowledge of what the, the agency world looks like themselves. It's a, it's, a really, uh, it's a really good question. I was actually talking to um, a couple of agencies re- recently and I had, to, I had to start by apologising and say, uh, I'm really sorry, but I'm, I'm going to come into this conversation with a very specific set of criteria and expectations because of my prior experience. And whilst I will try and behave and control myself appropriately, remember that you know I, I'm coming and talking to you for a specific reason or a specific need. It's quite hard to park, you know, your, your previous experience and not and not lean it, not lean into it too much. Um, so I did apologise, and I, I actually did use the phrase. So yes, I, I'm probably going to be that kind of client. Um, yeah, I'm guessing if they'd looked down your CV, they probably might have had a, a hint that uh, you know there were certain things they needed to make sure they were well prepped on. I was probably very lucky. I did actually, I did know the, the people in the agencies agencies quite well. Well, anyway, so I still, you know, wanted to caveat the conversation with that apology. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's as so long as it's something which all of the parties are able to sort of build into the relationship, it's got the potential to be quite a, a positive thing. Um, I mean, do you find that, that agencies are a, a significant part of the mix in the work that you're doing at, at Skyscanner yeah, versus how much of the, the resource you're able to use from internal teams? Uh, so we've only really worked with two agencies in my time at Skyscanner. And I think it's probably something that will always be part of the mix, but at, at what volume or altitude, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure. We've got a fairly large design team already, so about 55, 60 people at uh, any one time, and, and we're growing. We are, but we're also split across, we have 11 offices, the design team is split across seven of them, um, and you know, with that comes some interesting, interesting challenges. Um, equally, hiring design talent in various different cities, comes with its own challenges as well. So that 
opens up the the conversation. I think to talk about maybe is an agency more suitable in one geography than in another? Um, is an agency more suitable when you are looking at marketing or advertising activities versus you know experience design or strategy? Um, so I think agencies will always you know be part of the mix, um, but I don't really have a clear picture right now about what the future looks like for Skyscanner and that relationship. How much has that design team changed in the couple of years that you've been there? Um, was it always at that sort of size of 50 or so people, or has that grown significantly in the time that you've been there? It's grown um, for about a third bigger, maybe, but we, you know, we, we're, we're still we're still short. Um, we still need to we still need to hire. We still need to, to fill some gaps, but we also need to change the shape of the team and, and to, to do that in a way that helps the team grow. So we're, we're currently building out a design ops function that will really help us um, scale what we're doing and streamline some of our processes and make us more efficient, allow us to focus on the things that we want to spend our time on rather than have to spend our time on. So yeah, the shape of the team will, will, will change in order that we best set ourselves up for success. What's it like out there at the moment, the climate for hiring in that kind of talent? It's, it strikes me that design ops is still a relatively nascent area. Um, there's, there's still a, seems to lack a little formality around the kind of um, job roles and experiences which qualify people to do that sort of thing. Absolutely. It's, um, it's something which is in its infancy and it's something that we probably you know picked up ourselves and we're doing but we as we mature as a discipline we understand what role we need to play and um, i think we'll see the formalization of that function you know really enhance over the next couple of years um actually some of the i'm out in san francisco at the minute and um i'll be meeting up with some you know people who were at the forefront of the design ops uh, industry let's call it and uh, just to take some learnings from those people who've kind of done it at scale in, in, in some of the large organizations that are out here it's something that i'm still learning about myself but i think yeah hiring for those roles and understanding what they are is something that we're you know we're feeling out as an industry still i suppose one of the virtues of design and user experience is people tend to be fairly talkative and fairly happy to share so one would hope that that area will evolve fairly rapidly as people start to share that knowledge and disseminate it to different groups and see what's working where and all the different techniques. It will be, be fascinating to see how that plays out at, at Skyscan. Um, I mean, just on this theme of, of hiring as well and going back to you know, some of your own travel experiences, when you bring people onto your team, do the experiences they've had as travellers have a, a bearing on that? Do you, do you look to see what kind of travellers people are when they're, they're joining the team? Is the goal to have as much diversity as possible in terms of all the different travel experiences that people bring with you? Because it's you're right, it's such a personal thing. Almost everyone has a travel story of some kind to tell. So yeah, I think, I think it's fair to say we do have a pretty diverse team in terms of um, the way that they experience travel. We've got some people who are incredibly passionate travelers and you know use all of their spare time and money to do so um, but equally we've got the other end of the spectrum where we have a couple of people on the team who the very thought of leaving their home city is something that that that, that dreads them for, for various reasons so it's really interesting to see that cross split and equally with a quite diverse team culturally and uh, geographically that all comes with some really interesting and, and nuanced learnings I mean at the end of the day you know we, we're all travelers as we say of one sort or another yeah, it's, it, it naturally you fall into a conversation about, oh, you know, so what does travel mean to you? Or, you know, can you tell me about your last, you know, last few trips? Um, and it's really interesting to see the way that people even talk about or tell a story about travel. 
Um, do they talk about the journey itself or do they talk about what it meant to them? Did they talk about how it helped them grow as, a, as an individual? It's really interesting to see. You can have two people take exactly the same trip and describe it in an incredibly different way because everyone has their own story to tell. So I guess with, with that comes a whole host of things that is meaning you're always stepping back and looking and, and, and being forced to think about, about what it means to people. Yeah, I mean, it's probably a whole user research specialism in itself, getting people to relate those conversations in a meaningful way. I mean, for me, I, I almost have a, a fear of getting stuck next to someone on an aeroplane whose approach to a travel story is to tell you in sort of minute detail about all of the horrors they've had with various airlines, as opposed to the sort of where it got them or what experience they then went on to have. You know, when you're two hours into a conversation about the last time so-and-so airline lost their baggage, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at your watch and wondering... <laughs> when the flight is is going to end. But all of those, presumably all of those stories in some way are going to end up having a bearing on how you go about the next design steps, you know, the, the way you translate that research into something like Skyscanner. Have you found that when you're getting the user research team to go into these kind of conversations, that you're able to develop a bit of a blueprint as to how you get to the information that is actually pertinent to, to you guys? Um, so I think research at Skyscanner is something that we are heavily starting to invest in more and more. We've made some significant hires in the team over the last six to 12 months. And I think we are maturing as a research org in that perspective and understanding between quantum qual and how the you know the research team works with our data team and, and various other various other things it's it's an incredibly complex world to navigate and the different subsets of specialisms within research itself uh, whether it you know be a piece of usability research or market research or foundational research means that we need to be very practical about how we go about finding out um, what the problems are or what the questions are we want to ask um, I'm, I'm very lucky in the fact that we've, like I say, hired some um, significantly you know, experienced people who are going to help us shape what that function looks like. Um, so I would expect us to continue to, to grow and continue learning and, and making research an even more integral part of our design process. Is research something which has always been an interest for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was one of the things that when I, when I came to Skyscanner, I think I had probably the most experience in research at the time in terms of like from, from a leadership point of view and I think for me you can't really separate the discipline it's a, it's a key part of what we do and it has to be used appropriately I think the, the classic perception still exists in many organizations that you know especially in the fast-paced tech org that you know research can be one of those things that slows you down um, and, and you know that's absolutely not true you just have to make sure it's employed correctly um, so I think we still have a piece of education to do. And uh, yeah, that's different in different businesses, but that's certainly one of the things that um, I've been doing over the last 18 months. Do you trace that back to a particular type of, of training, you know, that importance on, on research? Because I think you're absolutely right. You know, there are still tech companies out there that sort of want the, the shiny design artifact at the end of the process, but don't necessarily see the importance of the research in, in getting to that artifact. Yeah, I think I think we still have got a lot of education to do, um, not just about research, but about what design is. And I think actually we have to continue keep educating ourselves, actually, and remind ourselves how to tell that story. As designers, I guess we can sometimes have a tendency to be on the back foot, maybe a little bit, perhaps even be a little bit precious 
uh, and you know separate ourselves away as this kind of like discipline that sits over here. But actually, for me, design is all of our jobs because design is just problem solving. And if I think about the people in my team, whether it's an engineer or a product manager or you know, a business analyst or a marketeer, um, all we're doing is really you know, leveraging the specific skills or tools that we've got or leveraging from our past experiences to really, you know, find, identify, and solve that problem. And actually, you know, design is a team sport in that respect. Um, and it's, I think one of the things that I, I try very hard to do is make sure that people don't talk about design in that kind of simple, aesthetic-only way, but much rather talk about design in the in the bigger sense, about what it is we're trying to do, uh, what problems we are trying to identify, and what problems we're trying to solve. Yeah, it's almost that... Um, peril of falling into the trap of sort of design with a, a capital D as this thing which sits separate from, from everything else, um, as opposed to it being something in service of, of the whole, as it were. Um, but yeah, that is a, that's a tricky thing to, to establish, I think. I guess it comes from a, a culture and observation of how people are behaving within organization, which is, is not always easy to, to achieve. When you think about the kind of work that you're doing now as a, a designer, and then you think back to how you were you were trained, did it anticipate the sort of stuff that you are now applying your skills to uh, when you were being trained at university as a, a designer? Um, was it something which you think now, with the benefit of hindsight, could sort of predict the kind of challenges that you would need to apply those skills to that you're now seeing in your day to day? That's a really great question. So, I mean, so I, I trained at um, Brunel. Uh, as an industrial design engineer, um, and actually a lot of people I've worked with over my career, uh, both agency and client side, are, are um, people who've been through through either the same courses at Brunel or similar ones at Loughborough or, or wherever. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's a bit of a, a consistent strand actually with many of the people that have been on this podcast, one way or another. Um, a, a lot of them have come through that that Brunel path, which is kind of interesting in itself. I think it's um it's certainly something that. We were very lucky. I mean, we, we were doing digital modules even, you know, back in the late 90s and early noughties at, at Brunel's part of industrial design. I think the way I always, I always explain to my, my dad. So my dad will say, who came from a kind of very industrial background. So, you know, what is it exactly you do, Gav? And I'll be like, well, it's, I do the same thing as, as I trained for my dad. I, you know, I, I find problems and I solve them. I said, the only thing is, is that the material in which I now, you know, sculpt and experience isn't a lump of metal that I mill or a piece of wood that I carve or a circuit board that I print and design. It's ones and zeros. And that's the only thing that's changed is the material or the medium. And I think that helps him understand, okay, fine, I understand now what you what you mean when you say what product design is in today's in today's world. One of the things that I, I did with um, the partners at Else um, so uh, Warren Hutchinson and um, Dave Dunlop and um, Andy Moore and various other people was was to step back and look at the people that we were bringing into the business at the time. So we wanted to bring in um, young people and you know, have a graduate scheme, etc. And one of the things we were finding when we were interviewing people was that university is great, but and it sets you up well, but it doesn't really set you up well enough to understand what it's like to work in commercial reality and. You know, we co-wrote uh, part of the master's de- degree in digital design and branding at, at, at Brunel um, for that specific reason is that, we, one, we wanted to give something back to the place that had educated many of us, um, but two, it was a great place for us to step in and help young designers understand what it's like to operate in a in today's world, in agencies, at the coalface, 
um, and arm them and give them the skills and tools that they would need from day one when they went into an organization. Because actually, and, and we were very lucky, we, we found some great talent and we hired some great talent as a result of um, observing you know, the, these people through, through the course of their, their masters. Yeah, it, it's such an important thing that, which I guess I've seen from similar sort of angles myself. I and mean, we've worked with Brunel over a number of years with uh, students in their final year coming and uh, doing a form of work experience at our different MEX conferences. Uh, and then um, also working on doing some guest lectures at, at Brunel and just different ways of forming those relationships which i think if they're formed early on in someone's career can then go on to be you know really productive on on both sides i mean i find it fascinating and wonderful to see you know some of the people who came through the early editions of that um scholarship program without conferences for instance now in roles themselves where they're able to come back and for instance be guests on this podcast or speak at other events and share back the things that they now are learning within their roles and and can continue that sort of cycle of um, you know, sharing with younger talent as they come up through the, the ranks and making sure that everything continues to grow. You know, that's the earlier you can get that going, it feels like the better it is for everyone. Absolutely. I think um, we sort of owe it to ourselves to make sure that we are setting our future uh, our future selves up for, a, for, the best, for the best experience. I think that means, that means giving back. Uh, it does, that does mean helping and, and coaching young, younger talent. It's something certainly that I think we're keen to do at Skyscanner over the, the next couple of years once we've got better foundations in to make sure that we can put the right support frameworks in for those people. I was really interested by what you're saying as well about the the idea of sort of sculpting digital material um, in the same way that a sculptor stone would might do because it's kind of a an interesting metaphor that you know if, if you run with it and think about sort of where that that leads and it reminds me of a, a talk which was given at one of our MEX conferences quite a few years back now by a guy called Franco Pepeschi who sort of picked up on a similar theme particularly in relation to uh, how we might think about how what we're doing digitally impacts the long-term sustainability environmental impact of things but uh, you know that if you you run with the the, the metaphor it um, makes you think well does that then mean that for people in the kind of roles that, that you are, it's necessary to have the same level of sort of craftsman's knowledge of the material that one would expect of a great sculptor or a great carpenter. So in, in that case, I guess it would be having a level of understanding of the actual fundamentals of digital, what those ones and zeros mean, the ability to code for yourself to, to some degree, and whether that's something which is essential when you're in a leadership role sculpting these kind of digital experiences for, for users because that's not a simple thing to to achieve you know there, there's a, a level of dedication i guess to understanding things at a code level um that is required and it, it kind of makes me wonder how one strikes that that balance i think that's um it's a fascinating area so i think when i so i, I specifically chose the course of brunel to study because and I, and I moved away from the course I was interested at the time, which was a, a Bournemouth Art College in three years. And I, and I chose the course specifically because it made it, it, you had to make everything you designed work. And I think that that changed my understanding of design because design is how it works, not how it, how it looks. And I think if I look at my career, that, and I've gone through different tracks of my first business was an industrial design business. And then I moved back to uh, London when I exited that and became a front-end developer for, for a few months and then gradually moved into um, 
into UX in kind of like 2006, 2007, and actually worked with Franco at LBR. Ah, uh, so, so you've had those experiences of, uh, if you like, getting your hands dirty with the code and um, with the uh, industrial design processes as well. Absolutely. I mean, so I, I studied industrial design, but my third year placement was at Yale.com doing, doing digital design for, for, for them. And actually, it was, and I chose that specifically because I was fascinated by the change in media that was coming and you could already see that you know this was going to be a, a, a big thing in the future and for me it was as part of industrial designers or product design designers it was the, it was the same thing it was just I just saw the medium as being different and I think you know if you look at any great sculptor or you know artist or anything you know, they've got a deep understanding of the materials within which they are they are working so it's not understanding not just understanding what it is they're trying to do but how they're trying to do it and you know and again that's that's why um i think that's probably why i you know have worked with so many people now and industrial design courses over the years because it isn't just about the way it looks it is about the way it works and how you solve go about solving that problem or even identifying in the first place um so i think for me it's always i've always had that metaphor understanding because i think it helps people understand what it is we do and why we do it. When you've had that sort of training, are you ever able to sort of unsee what you see? Do you think that makes you a tinkerer for life in, in terms of being interested in how machines work? I mean, is that something that you keep up yourself as a hobby? I think it's probably foundational in who I am. From, from the earliest age, I can remember I've always been a, a tinkerer, someone who would take stuff apart or build something. And uh, even to this day, you know, I'm still, although I have three children under five, I'm, I'm still a, you know, a, a, a tinkerer in my spare time when they, when they get the chance. Um, I have far, far too much Lego, I think, according to, according to my wife. But um, it, it's is, is, is there such a thing as too much Lego? I'm, I'm just not sure. Well, you know, I, the, the, the jury's out. In my perspective, no, it's absolutely not. Uh, but uh, you know, I still buy sets for myself as well as my, as well as my kids. But you know, I, I think being that way inclined to to you know question and understand how anything works, whether it's something mechanical, um, you know, physical, something digital. It's that curiosity and, and questioning of things. And I think I'm very lucky, actually, you know, where we are at Skyscanner because we have, you know, a great engineering team who we work very closely with, and you know, it's very collaborative in that sense. Is there anything on the technology side that is catching your attention for the future? Because I mean, when I think about yeah, some of the things which I suppose have been formative in the time that I've been involved in digital and, and design, I guess really the 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 overall, the major focus has been around mobile experiences of one kind or another. That's been the big sort of seismic change that has taken place over a number of years that things have become natively mobile in one way or another. But when you look out to the future, are there other areas which are starting to pique your, your interest, either personally or for the stuff that you're doing in Skyscanner about what kind of technologies might represent the beginning of a new seismic shift? I, I think, I mean, to, to grossly oversimplify it, it's that move. You know, we, we went very much into a digital-only realm for the last 15, 20 years, and I think now we'll, we'll, we're obviously starting to see the foundations of that going back the other way into more immersive technologies that, you know, cross that divide between something that is purely digital and something that is purely physical. So I think whatever whatever technology you look at, I find that designing for that, uh, you know, digital and physical experiences, so something that's very immersive, whether it's you know VR, AR, whatever, I think it's going to be a fascinating change curve for us as designers as we look to understand that 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 sector or that that area. And it's something that I haven't had too much exposure to in in the you know in the weeds. But I think you know that's something that we're all going to have to 
to learn to you know really you know tackle and understand. I think again coming from an industrial design background, it's you know I'm I'm really excited about what that future holds. Yeah, I keep getting excited myself about particularly VR and, and AR, and then finding that a year or two goes by and the things that you got excited about don't quite seem to gain traction. But I guess having had a similar experience in mobile over the course of sort of two plus decades now, you kind of realise that these things do take a bit of time, that something which looks like it might be right on the cusp of becoming consumer mainstream can then misfire and end up taking rather longer than expects. But it, it does feel like something is is breathed. Um, I mean, do you get a chance in, in your day job to have time to experiment with those kind of future-facing things? Or is it very much focused on the, the here and now of the business? I think that right now it's very focused on the well, it's focused on the here and now and what's next, but in a in a kind of more kind of strategic product sense rather than a kind of like technological sense. There's an awful lot to fix and solve within travel, just with the just with the foundational products that we've got. Um, and I think you know again, that's one of the reasons why I joined Skyscanner is that no one has really wholesale disrupted the category. Certainly not since the likes of Skyscanner did it 17 years ago. Um, when they kind of democratised all of the travel inventory for flights. Is it really 17 years since um, Skyscanner emerged? Yeah, it is. Ah, It's fascinating. I mean, it's kind of hard to... I mean, I guess that's a sign of a company which has really made an impact when you can't really remember what it was like before something like Skyscanner existed. But there's still still an awful lot to do. And it's an incredibly hard category to disrupt. It is being disrupted by the likes of Google and the bigger players, but it's harder for small companies to do it. It's just too complicated. Where do you look when you're seeking design inspiration for yourself? Because I, I guess regardless of whether you're thinking about your time at Else or at Skyscanner, you know, there's always that that requirement for you as an individual, as a, as a designer with an ongoing career to keep fresh and, and keep yourself inspired. Are there particular industries that you look to or particular you know places that you go to to keep that um, inspiration alive for yourself i think actually i think that's that's one of the reasons why i enjoy travel so much so you know rather than kind of looking at a specific industry or a specific product or brand which you know which obviously do in, in day-to-day life i think one of the things that i love about travel so much is it, it opens the doors to meeting lots of different people and lots of different cultures and just having very fluid and loose conversations that aren't necessarily forced or primed into the obvious area where you think you must go and look for inspiration. So I guess I tend to try and not deliberately, but I guess it's just happened this way that I tend to look more sideways for inspiration. And it tends to come from you know, random you know, random meets with like odd people that you know you wouldn't necessarily expect to learn from if you try and force a conversation. Um, yeah. yeah it's interesting. Because that I mean I guess that that is a kind of travel in itself, you know, that is a bit of a, a type of a traveler, I suppose, because you could go on, you could send two people on the same journey, the same set of miles that you're doing. But unless, I guess, you're carrying a certain attitude of mind with you, you might not end up having those experiences. Absolutely. Uh, I, I have to be you know, very open. I spent probably a good third of the year traveling, either you know, for, for work or for, for pleasure. And I think, you know, going back to what I said at the start, you know, travel for me is one of those things that sort of defines who we are and the way we think, and they are the things that form long-lasting memories that you can draw from. Yeah, very much so. I mean, those moments on journeys can really stick with you, possibly because they come as a a surprise and weren't something that was planned. Um, You're in San Francisco at the moment, 
But if you weren't on duty in San Francisco in September, where in the world would you most like to be if you were traveling for, for leisure in September? Oh, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, well, I don't have an immediate answer for where would I like to be if I was traveling right now? I haven't had for quite some time a, uh, a really great hot beach relaxing uh, holiday and that's probably because I had three children under five as much, as much as anything but um, I could quite I'm actually sat here looking I'm in a meeting all of our meeting rooms have uh, you know, large travel pictures and I'm looking at uh, a picture of Bali on the on the screen in front of me right now I have to say if I could escape there uh, this week um, that would be fantastic well there we go September 2020 you need to get on Skyscan and see what the flights are doing um, and I mean you've had a, a chance now I guess to, to work pretty extensively, both agency side and client side. When you look to the future, is there anything you haven't yet had a chance to try your hand at that you're really hoping might feature in your career? So one of the things I haven't done, I've always based myself in the UK. So whilst I've been very fortunate enough to travel lots and work with you know lots of different people and many different cultures, I've never based myself somewhere else. And that's something that for myself and for my family, I think it would be a fascinating, fascinating thing to do in the future. I think it makes you kind of more rounded as an individual when you when you draw, you know, when you throw yourself into something that's very different to your way your your comfort zone. Um, so definitely, living and working abroad would be something I want to do. And I guess yeah, working in a an environment that gives you exposure to different materials and different things. So as we look to the future of the digital and physical realm. Yeah, and I can see that as being part of, well, part of all of our futures, I think. I think you're right. There's something about that idea of, of where your, your base is, either physically or in terms of the particular type of company you're working for, the, the particular area of technology you're working in. If you can sort of force yourself to change that base in some way from what you're accustomed to, um, sometimes that's when the most interesting work happens. It's not necessarily that you are, yeah, there's something fundamentally radical about the thing that you've changed into, but in changing into something which is very different from what you know, you can give yourself that that fresh perspective which allows you to do a different type of work, possibly a better type of work than you've done in the past. I think, you know, for me, uh, you know, this is something I always tell my teams, you know, change is a positive thing and we should embrace it wholesale and, you know, really kind of you know lean into it and take advantage of what it gives us. Well, look, Gavin, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and have a chat about all of this, especially in the middle of your own busy travel schedule jetting around for, for Skyscan. So, um, yeah, I very much enjoyed the conversation and hope you'll stay in touch and let us know what happens next for you. I will do. I look forward to hearing the rest of the series as well. There we are, a pretty rich and varied career from in-house to agency and back again. It's always great to have guests like Gavin, where there's a lot of shared past references with the the MEX community, uh, but also very open to interviewing people who are just coming across MEX for the very first time. Uh, If you're interested in coming on the show yourself, or you have a guest that you'd like to recommend that I talk to, uh, just drop me an email. It's designtalk.com at mobileuserexperience.com and we can talk about recording a conversation together. 
Now, I did promise you at the start a new Max user story, uh, one of my tales of real-life user experience. There's a whole bunch of them back in the archive at mobileuserexperience.com, which you can take a look at. Uh, we haven't done one of these for a little while now. So this was something that happened a week or so ago, and I'd be very interested to hear from you what you think. So I'm sitting there in my study at home, and there's a ring at the door. It's a delivery from DPD. And generally, in the UK, I've found them to be among the better delivery companies. You know, They always let you know in advance uh, one, two-hour time slots when they're going to deliver, which for me, I, I find that very helpful. It means you know I know when uh, I need to be at home to sign for something. Um, but this time was a bit different, though. So I opened the door and went to sign for the parcel, kind of on autopilot. And the delivery guy looks at me a bit apologetically and says, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, but it won't let you sign for it for another 30 seconds. And he's holding out his little handheld scanner, probably still running on some version of Windows, as these ancient things seem to do these days. And he'd got there early and his system simply wouldn't show the signature screen for me as the customer to sign until the allocated time slot actually came up. So we stood there on the doorstep uh, for a little while and kind of made small talk. And then eventually the digital device managed to catch up with real life. Uh, and I signed on the screen and he went on his way. And it got me thinking about you know, what's going on here from a customer experience point of view. And I was wondering, like, is there a security element to this? That by limiting time slots to when it's probable that the delivery guy would be in the correct geographic location based on your calculating travel times, there's a better chance they're going to deliver it to the intended recipient. But I'm thinking, you know, surely that's something which is going to be better done via actual geolocation, even though it's a, probably a pretty ancient scanning device. I'm sure yeah, that capability is, is there. And I'm thinking, is it about ensuring that the delivery worker keeps to their schedule um, so that the other time slots, you know, further down the day, longer into the, the day, don't start getting ahead of themselves. And then the time slots that they've given people by text message or email start to become inaccurate. But any way you look at it, the resulting implication for customer experience to me seems a bit upside down. Now, personally, because this was the first time, I mean, I just found it a bit of a novelty. But you can imagine that that's going to get old quite quickly. Uh, there aren't going to be many customers over the long term who can enjoy hanging around on their doorstep, waiting for a delivery driver's computer to allow them to sign for a parcel. And also for the driver, uh, yeah, it's going to be quite weird if essentially they're being penalized for getting their deliveries done quicker. So it just got me thinking that, yeah, as is often the case, the metrics that we as designers of these kind of systems pick to structure and determine the success of the system can really have unexpected consequences. Yeah, those are things that you need to choose very carefully. And if anything, that the lesson here we think about user experience is that we need to think about the consequences of unexpected outperformance uh, as much as we do the consequences of unexpected underperformance. You know, when you're looking at user experience, customer experience issues, often we search for where we think things are going wrong because they seem like the easiest ones to fix. But this is perhaps an example which shows us that actually when things go right and things happen quicker, more efficiently than expect, uh, if the system is not designed to be able to support that, it can still have a knock-on effect uh, and not end up with a good experience for the end user. 
Now, time, of course, is one of the most subjective things that we as, as humans experience. And just as a thought that you might want to ponder here, I mean, what do you think that DPD or any other delivery firm here could have done with either the digital or the human elements of this experience to make that enforced 30-second latency a more memorable experience for me as a customer? And I'm just a riff on this, but I can't help but think that there could have been some sort of digital engagement, you know, maybe something on the screen which allowed as the recipient to see how much ahead of schedule the driver had arrived. Uh, perhaps a little congratulatory confirmation button that would have created just a moment of engagement uh, and served to mask that 30-second gap. Because in the grand scheme of things, it's not the 30 seconds that matters. It's the unexpected piece of latency, whatever length that is. And if you can find some way to try and smooth that over, it has the potential to transform the experience from the customer point of view, not just for deliveries, but you know, in any example here where you have a moment where a customer has to wait, whether that's in a travel situation or a checkout situation, uh, there are interesting things you can do to smooth over those periods of latency. But anyway, if you have any bright ideas, do write into the podcast. Uh, the email address again is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. Uh, and I'd love to hear uh, your bright thinking on how we could have improved that situation there. Well, that is it for this edition. Uh, but just before you go, is there anyone you can think of who might have enjoyed listening to this episode? If so, do please send them the link to mobileuserexperience.com and the podcast section where you can find this episode and all of the others archived uh, and encourage them to have a listen and, and subscribe. The listenership is growing every month. Yeah, our next community is expanding very nicely at the moment. Uh, and these kind of one-to-one -one introductions are really the best ways to get new people involved in the podcast and our social dinners uh, and all of the other MEX activities. I'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.